0: Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. What I want to answer. The first one is, what form are the first fruits in when they are raised? And I don't know if we'll have time uh, during the sermon time for Q and A. But certainly in the, in the snack time, we'll have the opportunity to go further into this. So what firm, what form are the first fruits in when they are raised? And, and so clearly we believe in the resurrection. And you heard in the Bible reading that Christ said to the Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in life after death. It was basically just this life and then you die. Christ said to them, you do greatly err. This is a massive mistake that you're making. Not to acknowledge the resurrection. So here we certainly acknowledge the resurrection. Look at uh, 1 John 3 as we begin to answer this question what form are the first fruits in when they are raised? 1 John 3. And verse 1 says, Behold, What manner of love, oh, the depth of love that the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the the tekna, the offspring of God. Therefore, the world knows us not, because it knew him not. So it has no idea who we are. It doesn't know. They don't know God. Beloved, now are we the tekna, the offspring of God, And it does not yet appear what we shall be. So we don't fully know what we're going to be like. We know we're the offspring of God now. And we know we're going to be resurrected. But we don't fully know. It does not yet appear what we shall be. But this is what we know. We know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. This is our first clue. We will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So, you know, no man has seen God, but we will see him, and we will be like him. So that's the first part of the answer here. Uh, when Christ appears, we're going to be like him. Now, look at John 20. John 20. And beginning in verse 19, this is now after Christ's resurrection. So Christ is the forerunner. He's the pioneer. He came, he lived as a human being, and he died. And then after three days and three nights, he was raised from death. Just as he said he would be. Verse 19, then the same day at evening, so the same day that he was resurrected at evening, being the first day of the week, When the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. So they were so afraid for their lives, they locked the doors. And while the doors were locked, came Jesus and stood in the middle and said unto them, peace be unto you. And again, we see this whenever uh, Christ appears or whenever an angel appears to a man, it's never to terrify them. It's never to terrorize them. It's never to strangle them. It's always to wish peace upon them and to communicate a message. So peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. So this is now another clue for us that the resurrected Jesus had the ability to reappear as a human being with the very same wounds that he had before he died. So he had that ability. So he was recognizable to them. And so when we are raised, it would appear that we would have the ability then to appear to our friends and family in a form that is recognizable to them. They would recognize us when they look at us, just as they had recognized Christ. Because it says we will be like him. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. They recognized him. They saw him as he was. Now drop down to verse 26. So that was the same day. Now after eight days, again, his disciples were within and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut. So again, the doors are locked. And Jesus came and stood in the middle and said, peace be unto you. Then he said to Thomas, because Thomas was doubting, Reach here your finger and behold my hands. And reach here your hand and thrust it into my side. And be not faithless but believing. It is me. The same Christ that they crucified, I'm, I'm living again. And you have proof with my wounds that it is me. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Okay, let's now go back to chapter 3 of John. A familiar passage with uh, Nicodemus, chapter verse 4 of chapter 3. Nicodemus said unto him, how can a man be born when he is old? So Christ told him, you must be born again to enter the kingdom. And he wants to know, well, I'm old. I've already been born. How can an old man be born again? Can I enter the second time into my mother's womb and be born? So he wants to understand how. How can the, I want to be in the? So he wants to know then, um, how does he do this? Does he go into his mother's womb again? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say unto you, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So there must be that baptism and then growth into the Holy Spirit culminating into our birth. So the conception and the birth by the spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. So all of us in this room have been born of the flesh, and we're flesh. That's that's that first birth. The second birth is different. He says, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So there are two different categories. There's the fleshly birth, and then there's the spirit birth. So we know that when we're born again, we are of the Spirit. Thank you. Verse 7. Marvel not that I said unto you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wants. And you hear the sound thereof. But you can't tell where it came from and where it's going. So you can feel the breeze. Where did it come from? Is that a breeze from the Arctic? Is it from the Florida? Where did the breeze come from? And where is it going? I don't know. But I felt it past me. I know I I felt it. So is everyone that is born of the spirit. So that which is flesh is flesh. But of the spirit, it's a different category. So we're the same person. It's just a different type of existence. It's a spiritual existence. Look now at 1 Corinthians 2. And, and there's a scripture in Colossians that talks about Christ being the firstborn from the grave, the firstborn from the dead. So, this is flesh; we die, and then we're born from the dead when we're resurrected into this spirit life. First Corinthians two, verse nine. So again, um, backing up what John said in First John three, we don't fully understand this, but we do know we're going to be like Him. And verse nine. But as it is written, I has not seen, verse Corinthians 2, verse 9, I has not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man, the things which God has prepared for them that love him. So it's a whole new level of existence, and, and there's things that God has prepared for us, and we can't know them physically. But verse 10, but God has revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for the spirit searches all things yes the deep things of god so there are things we can know by the spirit and we can know more about this resurrection because it has been revealed to us by the spirit and that let's let's learn that in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians to see what paul understood 1 Corinthians 15 and we'll begin in verse 34. Awake to righteousness, and sin not. So repent, turn around, live this way. Awake to righteousness, and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. But some men will say, How are the dead raised up? And in fact, that's the question here: How are the dead raised up? Except uh, this question is a good attitude, whereas the question here, the questioner here in corinthians is a skeptic they're trying to negate this truth and they greatly err. that the truth of the resurrection is reality and it's the reality that we should be completely focused on and so it is true that the dead will be raised but you know the skeptics were saying well how are the dead going to be raised up but it's great that they asked that question because now we get to learn the answer through the apostle paul and with what body do they come you fool that which you sow is not quickened except it dies. So that's just the reality. That if you want to sow wheat or tomato or whatever, you're going to sow those seeds. The seeds have to die. And then something else comes, whatever it is that you were sowing. But the seed has to die first. So that which you sow is not quickened except it die. And that which you sow... You, you sow not that body that shall be, but bear grain. It may become wheat or some other grain. So we have to understand this is the reality that the body that you will have is not the body that you have now. We, we use the body that we have now. Everything that we do now, in a sense, we are sowing our new body. So there, eternal life is a gift, but the reward is based on what we do. So, so where we use our body, our physical body, to sow a new body. Verse 38, but God gives it a body as it has pleased him. And to every seed, his own body. So when we're in this new existence, when we're in the kingdom, just as we are today, we all, every single body in here is different. There there are no two bodies in this room that are the same. Even though we all have one head, two arms, two legs, we, we have the human form, but everybody is unique. And so it will be in the kingdom. That we will have spectacular bodies, but everybody will be unique. And it will be given to us as it pleases God. He goes on in verse 39, All flesh is not the same flesh. So every body is unique, but even flesh is not the same. There is one kind of flesh of men, another of beasts, another of fish, and another of birds. There's different types of flesh as well. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. So on the terrestrial plane, where bodies are made of flesh... There are different types of flesh and all unique bodies. And then there's another plane. There's the celestial. And in the celestial plane, there are different bodies. The sun is not the moon. The moon is not Venus. Venus is not Saturn. Saturn is not an asteroid. So in the celestial plane, there are different bodies. And on the terrestrial plane, there are different bodies. So it's showing us now that the kingdom will be made up of beings that have a completely different type of body altogether, and within that category, uniqueness, and different, ty- different types of flesh. There's, there's fish flesh here, and there's chicken flesh, and there's human flesh. So different bodies made up of different types of flesh. Same thing in the kingdom. Completely different bodies, different types of bodies, and all unique. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. So when we meet Abraham, when we meet Joseph, when we meet Ezekiel, they're going to have a glory. That glory is going to be different than my glory. But I'll have a glory. It won't be their glory. And and you'll have a glory. And hopefully your glory will be greater. If, if, if I do my job, your glory will be greater than mine. But we will all differ in glory. And we're not going to be jealous of each other. We're going to rejoice because all of our glory glorifies Christ and glorifies the Father. So also, so in this exact, if you understand this, you understand the bodies that are on the earth, the bodies that are in the heaven, how they are different categories of bodies. And within those categories, there's uniqueness. This is also the way it is in the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption, the same way you sow a seed and then you get a sunflower. You sow a seed and then you get an oak tree. It's the same way what we're doing now, we're sowing something else. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. So you see people today, they're sick they're older, the body is falling apart, doesn't matter. We're sowing a glorious body. That's what matters. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. The Greek says soma sukikon." It is raised a spiritual body. The Greek is soma pneumaticon. So this body is soma sukikon. It's a human fleshly body. But there's a soma pneumaticon. And this is what John was talking about, or Christ was talking about to Nicodemus. That the pneuma goes where it wants. You can feel it, but you don't know where it came from, you don't know where it's going. That so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. So we will have a a pneumatic body. And this to the Greek mind, this is heresy. If you were schooled in Plato and the Babylonian mysteries, God cannot come to earth. And air is, is part of the earth's atmosphere. So there is no way that the resurrection would have anything to do with matter. And Paul is saying, soma pneumaticon. He's taking the pneuma of the atmosphere and saying that that's what the body will be like. So we have to understand this that it's a it it is a body, it's not just you don't just say spiritual body, we say soma pneumaticon. It's a pneumatic body. There is a natural body. We we have it now. And there is a spiritual body. There is a pneumatic body. There is. This is reality. This is in the indicative. This is reality. And so it is written: the first man Adam was made a living soul. The last man, Adam, was made a life-giving spirit. So Christ will give life. Howbeit that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural. Afterward, that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, he's earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. And so he's, he's life-giving. So that's, again, we talked about the divinity of Christ. Only God can give life. Christ gives life as is the earthly, such are those that are earthly. Verse 49, as we have borne the image of Adam, as we have, uh, we all are have bearing the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. And that's what we saw in 1 John 3, that when, when he appears, we will be like him. We will bear his image. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither does corruption inherit incorruption. So Christ said, I'm telling you, that which is born of flesh is flesh. So when people are running around saying, I'm born again, and they're flesh, they're negating the very thing Christ said. If you're flesh, you're flesh. And spirit is spirit. And so Paul says the same thing here. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. And this is the first resurrection. So when Christ returns, the dead in Christ rise first, then those of us who are alive and remain, we join them in the air. And it says nothing of the wicked the first resurrection the first roots resurrection are those in christ now the next question says i'm not sure i understand what it means to be baptized for the dead so that's also in this passage and this perhaps is one of the most difficult scriptures uh, in the bible and people take this many different ways the letter to the corinthians is uh it's, it's a challenging letter because there there are there's four letters that were written, two letters are missing, and we don't have all the full context, but let's see what this means verse twenty nine else what shall they do, which are baptized for the dead if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? So I think the it's the Mormons that have a ritual where you can be baptized for someone who's died. And that way they can get into heaven. I think we need to be clear, first of all, before we look at what it means, let's be very clear about what it doesn't mean. And it does not, there's, there's no way the word of God would endorse, you know, my uncle, he's dead now. He was an alcoholic for most of his life. So he was just spaced out. He had a very bad marriage, like really awful. That caused him to drink, and he went into severe alcoholism. One day, he just quit. It was like miraculous. He just stopped. And then he had 10 years, 10 good years of life. He got married. He had a daughter. In fact, sorry, he he got married, then he had the daughter, and that's what caused him to quit. And then he had 10 years with her. And then he went senile, and he had another four or five years senile, and then he died. So I could say, you know, I want my my uncle to be in the kingdom. He's dead now. He has no consciousness, no knowledge. So I could go and get, the, I think the scripture is saying, I can get baptized, and now he can be in the kingdom. I think we'd all agree that the scripture is not saying that. Yes? We all agree the scripture is not saying that. Okay. So, what is the scripture saying? So, that's what it's not saying. I think a, a God would be very unjust if we just picked and chose who we want in the kingdom and we get baptized for them and they end up there. The Bible's not saying that. Everybody has to repent and choose Christ for themselves. So, my uncle will have that opportunity when he is resurrected. So, now let's look at the Greek. And the Greek here it says, epiti u baptizimonoi, baptizimonoi, u ton necron. What's important here in the Greek for our understanding? So, uh, for the dead, this is the preposition huper. It's where we get the English word hyper. So, if I say somebody's hypersensitive or hyperactive, you say they're overly sensitive or they're overactive. But the Dead, tone nekron, is plural, the dead plural, and it's genitive. So they're being baptized, and their baptism belongs to the dead. It's for the dead. The way Greek works, the preposition huper, it changes its meaning depending on the case of the noun it's associated with. So it can be used in the accusative or it can be used in the genitive. If it's in the accusative, it means over, overly. So where we get hyperactive. If it's in the genitive, I'll read here what Thayer says, with the genitive, it's a property of place. BDAG, another lexicon says, with the genitive, it's a marker of the moving cause or reason meaning because of, or for the sake of. Mounts says with the genitive, it means in behalf of, or instead of. So the Greek, because it's in the genitive, huper, ton, nekron, is really saying instead of, or in place of. So, else what shall they do which are baptized in place of the dead would be the rendering of the greek still what does this mean greek is contextual so for us to understand what this means we can't just look up the dictionary meaning and say okay that's what it means we have to look at the context so let's now look at the context beginning in verse 12 Beginning in verse 12. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? So this is the context. There's a conflict around whether or not the dead are raised. And Paul is putting the conflict to rest. He's saying absolutely the dead are raised. I I don't understand how some of you believe the dead are not raised. Verse 13. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. So if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is dead. You can't believe in Christ and not believe in the resurrection. And if Christ be not risen, then our preaching is vain. And your faith also is vain. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise. If so, be that the dead rise not. So this is the context. There's conflict over whether or not the dead are raised. Verse 16, for if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. You are yet in your sins. The whole thing is hopeless. If if Christ isn't raised, then we're doomed. Then they also, which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished so the context here shows us that there are some that have fallen asleep in christ remember the deacon Stephen, who preached the word of god powerfully to the point where they could not withstand his wisdom and how did they respond to that did they all convert no they lost the debate and they stoned him to death So, we've lost Stephen and we've lost others. So, if Stephen died in Christ and there's no resurrection, well, that was a waste of time. Why why did he do that? Why didn't he just run? Why did he stand and face stoning? It's hard for us to read this because we live in North America. Isn't it that you convert to Christ and you get a new house? Isn't, isn't that how it works? I'm believing God for this new car. Isn't that how the gospel works? I'm, I'm, I'm a claim, uh, what is it? Name it and claim it. Yeah. So, you know, in Christ, we snap our fingers and we get new things. Would you like a new suit? I'll pray with you, brother. I'm, I'm believing with you. Yeah, name it and claim it. So when we come to the word with this context, we have no clue what it's saying. We have to put ourselves in a first century context where people were being fed to lions for naming Christ. Where people were being burned alive for staying faithful to Christ. And in that context, he's saying, they which have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Not only did they suffer in this life, there's nothing to look forward to. Verse 19. And this is the, this is the real context. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. And again, we don't understand that context because we live in North America. But the world is changing. And there's a hatred towards Christians. And we are going to understand this very clearly pretty soon. It might take a few years. But we will understand very clearly that if, if it's only in this life, this is all we've got to be Christians. We are of all men most miserable because it's persecution and suffering and then nothing. But now, verse 20 is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept? So Christ is risen. Stephen will rise. Those young people that we saw burned alive. Those people that we saw fed to the lions. Christ is risen. And he's the first fruits of them that have risen. Of them that have slept. So they are coming back to life. They didn't die for nothing. For as in Adam... Sorry, verse 21. For since by man came death, and by man came also the resurrection of the dead... For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But, every man in his own order. Christ the first fruits. So he says he's the first fruits of them that slept. Afterward, they that are Christ's at his coming. So we will see Deacon Stephen again. He didn't die in vain. So at his coming, we'll see, we'll see them. Then comes the end. When he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is obvious that he has accepted which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So, so everything will be subjected to Christ except the Father. Christ will then turn everything over to the Father that God may be all in all. Now, in that context, we come to verse 29. So the context is there is a resurrection of the dead. And those that have fallen asleep in Christ, it's not over. Yes, they they came to a miserable end, but there is a hope of the resurrection, and we will see them again when Christ returns. In that context, the scripture now says, Otherwise, what shall they do which are baptized for the dead, if the dead rise not at all? So it's the same argument. If, if there's no resurrection, what's the point? Why are they then baptized for the dead? So the, the verb puousasin is in plural. So it's the multiple people are being baptized. It is future tense. So I would, I would actually translate this. If I were to translate the Greek based on my knowledge now of the Greek, I would translate it as otherwise... What will they do who are baptized to replace the dead? That's how I would translate that. So what's the point? And and why do we have people being baptized to replace those who have died in Christ? And I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. Think of, again, the Greek context. Think of the church as an army going to war. And the Greeks would know Alexander the Great, who basically conquered the whole world in, in a few years. And what he did, what he used was something called the Greek phalanx, which is basically a block of men, big block of men who stand in rows and columns. And the first row have shields. And they march. And everybody behind them has spears, and they march behind them. And if, if I'm in the first row... And Daniel's behind me. If I'm killed and I drop to the ground, what Daniel does is he picks up my shield and he replaces me. And the the army keeps going. So it's this unstoppable force. Because as soon as a man dies, the next man in the row, or the next man in the column, or sorry, the next row, picks up the shield, replaces the man that just left, and keeps going. This is the context of understanding this that to be baptized to replace the dead. Look at, hold your place here, let's go to Psalm 78. Psalm 78, we're going to go back to 1 Corinthians 15. Psalm 78, verse 4. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should make known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God and forget not the works of God But keep his commandments. So the scripture is saying. That there are people unborn. That when they are born. They will come. To declare the praises of God. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians. 15. Where we see the same notion here. People like Stephen. Stephen are being stoned to death. People are watching that, and then they're saying, sign me up. And they're being baptized to replace the fallen soldiers. Why would you do this if in this life is the only hope of Christ? Uh, Unless you're a, uh, is it a sadist? What is it? Or masochist. Masochist. Yeah, I think sadist is when you inflict pain on someone else. Masochist when you want it on yourself. So you're watching this group of people getting burned alive. And then you're saying, you know what? Baptize me. I want to join this group. I will replace the fallen soldiers. Why would you do that? If in this life is all where we have hope in Christ. And again, the the baptizo, it's a. it's uh, middle voice. It's passive voice. So it's, they're, they're being bat- someone is baptizing them. I think the saying, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That, that when the, the martyr, when people see the conviction of the church, that's what spreads the gospel. And, and no matter how much they try to persecute the church and destroy the church, more people come to replace the dead. Why would they do this if the dead are not raised? So again, I would I would uh, translate this. Otherwise, what will the ones, those who will be baptized in the future to replace the dead, what will they do if the dead do not rise? Why would they join the army and remain faithful and be killed like their predecessors? That's how I would interpret this. Verse 30. And and why stand we in jeopardy every hour? So so why would people come to replace and be baptized into the church? To replace these fallen soldiers. And why would we stand in jeopardy every hour? So it's the same context. if, If there's no resurrection, this is nonsensical. It makes no sense. When it all makes sense is when we realize death is nothing. Eternal life is everything. And there is a resurrection. I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord... I die daily. So I'm happy to die, and I see you rejoicing in Christ, and I'm happy to die. And every day I get up, I'm ready to die. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, how does that advantage me? If the dead rise not. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So I think when we read the whole passage in context, it's it's just one point that he's trying to make. And and it's hard for us when we kind of, I'm I'm believing for a flat screen TV, you know, it's hard for us with that mentality to read this passage. But if we're watching people being burned alive, if we're watching people being stoned to death, then we're making the decision to be baptized. What sense does this make? Why are we replacing them if the dead don't rise? So that's how I would explain that passage. And and for us, you know, Matthew 24, Christ tells us these things that are going to happen. These are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. So this health and wealth gospel, it's going out the window. And we're going to see who the true Christians are. So this first century text is going to be very applicable to us. Okay. I don't think I'm going to get through all the questions, but I want to, um, I want to get through as many as I can. A quick question here uh, on Revelation 5, which is where we need to go to kind of tie 1 Corinthians 15 to our context, our present-day context. But there's a question that I understand that no one but Jesus Christ is able to open the scroll. But it speaks about people under the earth, and that's confusing. It can lead people to believe that hell exists. So look at Revelation 5, where it speaks about Christ being worthy to open the scroll. Revelation 5. In verse 1, And I saw the right hand of him that sat on the throne, a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. So it's totally sealed. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And the scripture here says no man, the Greek doesn't say no man, it just says none, none, no one in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. So the call who is worthy is not a call to say which man is worthy, it's who is worthy, is, is anybody worthy? And there's a search to see, is anybody worthy? And nobody is worthy. In heaven, on earth, or even under the earth. And he wept much because no man was found worthy to open, or no, again, it doesn't say man, no one, uh, to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. So no one alive. And even Moses, who is under the earth, he's buried. If we could bring him back to life, he wouldn't be worthy. To open. If we were to bring Daniel back to life, Joseph, anybody under the earth, even insects, would not be worthy. Nothing in the on the earth or under the earth is worthy to open the scroll. So it's not speaking of hell. It's just it means what it says. Nobody on the earth, nobody under the earth. Another question. The seals are opened before the return of Christ, and they, they are, are concurrent, so each one is opened and continues running until they're all opened. Uh, does this mean that it's possible that some of the seals have already been opened? Let's go to chapter 6, uh, verse 1, and I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, come and see, And I saw and behold a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. And then in verse 3, the second seal, uh, verse 4, there went out another horse that was red, and power was given unto him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another, and there was given unto him a great sword. Okay, so this is a personal opinion now. This is my personal opinion. The scripture means what the scripture means. Um, I personally believe that this first seal has been opened. I I think that this um, horseman of deception is riding the earth. And he's reconfiguring the earth to set us up for the second seal. I think the violence that we're seeing on the earth today is preparatory. I I don't think it's, it's what we will see when the second seal opens. So that's just my personal opinion. Um, but, but the first five seals represent the wrath of Satan. And the culmination or the domination of the false Nimrod religion, the sun and moon worship that began in Genesis. This, it, it, the, the, um, the will of Nimrod to pull all men together under one political system, one religion, one language... Uh, this, is, this is Satan's sort of last gasp to try to get that control of the earth and have everybody worship him. With the sixth seal, when the sun is darkened and the moon turns red and the, the stars fall, the very objects that man has been worshipping under this false religion, God negates. And that's when the wrath of God begins. So we have to endure the wrath of Satan with the first five seals. And I, I believe this first seal of deception reconfigures the earth and the balances of power to set us up for the next horseman. And when that violence begins, then we'll see like the days of Noah, where the violence is just everywhere. It is rampant. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many will wax cold. But I don't think we're there yet. And then the fifth seal, verse 9. So this is now the culmination of this false religion, this Nimrod religion. Where does it end up? Now Satan has his push. this, this This is it now. This is when he will be like the Most High and remove the righteous men from the earth as much as he can. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, do you not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them. And it was said to them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. So this is Satan's final. You know, I've heard when people are dying, uh, say they're in palliative care and they're kind of slipping away that they kind of rally and they kind of come back and maybe they'll have a couple of good days and you think they're going to get better and then they die. So this final um, seal, in my, it's like the rallying of a dead man. This, this false religion, it's coming to an end and this is Satan's final push. And we have to endure this. And if in this life, we have, in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But there is a resurrection from the dead. And so we can stand against this like Stephen, like the faithful martyrs, because we know we shall live again. And so our brethren here are waiting. Okay, let me, um, I'll come back to a couple of other questions later. Uh, I think Valley of Dry Bones I need a bit more time with. Um, How much time do I have? How are you guys doing? How much time as I like? I like you. <laughs> okay, let me, um, I'll, I'll come back to the other questions, um, but let me answer this question. I think we have a Bible study at the end of the month, so we'll, we'll do that. Uh, let's, let's do the Valley of Dry Bones, and then we'll, um, we'll stop for today. Ezekiel 37, what does the Valley of Dry Bones mean? So there's all kinds of um, interpretations of the valley of dry bones. And I think the, the first caution I would say as we go into this chapter is beware of replacement theology. Replacement theology. Replacement theology comes from the devil. Replacement theology says God used to work with Israel. But. He's replaced Israel with us, the church. And so he's cut off Israel. Israel uh, did not obey him, and so he destroyed them, and that's that. We don't adhere to replacement theology. The scripture makes it very clear that God has a commitment to Israel, to Judah. And he will fulfill that commitment. And what Ezekiel 37 is showing us Is how God is going to fulfill this commitment. So even though Israel is evil. Even though Judah has rejected God. God has not rejected them. Malachi chapter 3. He says. You sons of Levi. Or you sons of Israel. Because I the Lord change not. You are not consumed. That's how the Old Testament ends. The Old Testament ends saying, Israel, you're wicked. But because I don't change, and I've made a covenant with you, and I've made a promise, and I have a prophecy, my prophetic word has gone out of the good I'm going to do for you. Because I don't change, I don't break my word, you will not be consumed. So Ezekiel 37 means what it says. Let's read it. Beginning in verse 1. Ezekiel 37, the hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, which was full of bones. So there'd been a great slaughter and they were full of bones and caused me to pass by them round about and behold, there were very many in the open valley and lo, they were very dry. So they had been there for a while. You know, sunrise, sunset, sunrise, it's dry. And he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O oh Lord God, you know. That's an interesting question. I mean, we know now because we have the theology, we understand the resurrection. But imagine seeing these bones which are really dry and being asked, can these bones live? It's a good answer. Uh, Lord God, you know. Again, he said unto me, prophesy "...upon these bones, and say unto them, O you dry bones, hear the word of the Lord." So when the word of the Lord goes forth, it will be accomplished. Thus says the Lord God unto these bones, "...behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will bring up flesh upon you, and cover you with skin." And put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So this is Israel being brought back to physical life. That which is flesh is flesh. Our resurrection is not to flesh. Our resurrection is to pneuma. So when Christ comes, we're being resurrected to pneuma. But here we see another resurrection. This is the second resurrection where... Those that have died not knowing Christ will be brought back to life. But the focus here is on Israel. That specifically Israel will be brought back to life in the second resurrection. And they will know their God. The God that they've rejected. The God that they've disobeyed. They'll be brought back to life and they will know this God. And you shall know, you Israel shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a shaking. So we're getting a a visual here on what the resurrection, the second resurrection, will be like. It's not the first resurrection. The first resurrection is the better resurrection. This is the second resurrection. There was a noise, and behold, a shaking, and the bones came together, bone to his bone. So you see the Spirit of God moving among the bones and reassembling them and decorating them and breathing life into them and when i beheld lo the sinews and the flesh came upon them and the skin covered them above but there was no breath in them so it looks like in this resurrection the body is first reconfigured and put back together but like adam when god made adam from the dust there was no life in him he needed the breath of life to animate him in the same way they're they're brought back to human form But they need the breath of life. Then he said unto me, prophesy unto the wind. Prophesy, son of man. And say to the wind, thus says the Lord God. Come from the four winds, O breath. And breathe upon these slain. That they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them. And they lived. And stood up upon their feet. An exceeding great army. Then he said unto me, son of man. These bones are the whole house of Israel behold they say our bones are dried and our hope is lost and again we saw that in Malachi the discouragement of Israel they were completely discouraged you know they couldn't connect the dots that is because of their disobedience they were in the state they were in but they were hopeless and so God is saying so now Ezekiel is a captive among the other captives and he's hearing what Israel is saying or Judah is saying uh, our bones are dried and our hope is lost. We are cut off for our parts. Therefore prophesy and say. And this, you see this over and over. Every time God punishes Israel. Every time God punishes Judah. And every time he tells them of the punishment. He also shows the relief. He always shows them his love. God is faithful. And he is fa- Any religion. Any prophet. anybody Who wants to declare God's hatred of the Jews. Is of the devil. That what, When we say God hates the Jew. We're saying God is a liar. And God is not a liar. So as evil as the Jew is. As evil as Israel is. God is a covenant God. And because he's faithful. They are not consumed. And you see that with Hitler. You see that with Muhammad. You see all of these people. Who want to destroy the Jew. They are tools of the devil. God is faithful. Therefore prophesy verse 12 unto them and thus says the Lord God, behold, O my people, you're still my people. I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. This is my agreement with you. This is what I'm going to do. Not for your sake, but for Israel's sake. For Abraham's sake. For my word's sake. And you shall know that I am the Lord. When I have opened your graves. O my people. And brought you up out of your graves. So the whole world is going to be resurrected. And these people are going to be in Israel. And the whole world is going to look to Israel. For the guidance of God's law. And they'll see the primacy. The, the, the special place. That Israel will have in the plan of God. And, and it's God's plan. I don't get to say, God, I don't like this. I want, I want everybody to go to Africa. And I want the African to have the primary place. It's God's plan. It's God's world. And I'm just happy to be a part of it. So Israel has this prime spot in God's plan. And, and the whole earth is going to come to Israel to hear the word of God and the law of God. And God is going to put these people in a special privileged position to teach His way to the rest of the world. In Abraham, all the world will be blessed. Verse 13. You shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves O my people and brought you up out of your graves. And I shall put my spirit in you. So in the second resurrection, now they come back to life. Now they're going to have his spirit so they can participate in the new covenant. And you shall live. And I shall place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it says the lord and i think uh let's just conclude on this question in romans and i think it's uh romans 9 that i want and first we'll look at um, Romans 9 and verse 1 I say the truth in Christ I lie not my conscience also bearing me witness in the holy spirit that I have great heaviness and con- continual sorrow in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed anathema from Christ for my brethren my kinsmen according to the flesh who are israelites to whom pertains the adoption and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises. They belong to Israel. Whose are the fathers, and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came, unto us a child is born. Christ came through them. Who is over all, God blessed forever and ever. So so they're cut off, and, and this is grieving Paul, but he knows that Israel has a primary place. Look at verse 14. Sorry, verse 13. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau have I hated. So this is covenant love. God has a covenant love with Jacob. He will never break it. But there's no covenant love with Esau. It doesn't matter what Esau tries to do. He says, I will build up. God says, I'll tear it down. But there's covenant love with Jacob. He will not relent. Because his word changes not, or because God changes not, Jacob is not consumed. What shall we say then? Verse 14. Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And this reminds me, in fact, of Deacon Jan's sermon about the uh, parable, where, you know, at the 11th hour, these workers come and they get the same pay as everybody else. And uh, the the, the first workers feel like that's unfair. And Christ says, I gave you what I agreed with you. And because I'm loving and kind to these others, is your heart evil because I'm kind? So God can have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And uh, he certainly has in his plan this uh, uh, depth of love for Israel. And let's just finally... Go to chapter 11. And verse 13. For I speak to you, Gentiles, inasmuch as I'm the apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my office. But he's going on to show them that uh, Israel has the primary spot. Verse 16. For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, are grafted in among them, and with them partake of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, so I'm a Gentile, I'm grafted in, and I get to participate in the the benefits of the tree. Boast not against the branches, the natural branches. So we cannot boast against the Jew. But if you boast, you bear not the root, the root bears you. But you'll say then the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Don't be arrogant, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest he also spare not you. Behold therefore the goodness and the severity of God on them which fell severity but toward you goodness, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also shall be cut off. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. And that's what we see in Ezekiel 37. That God, even though they died rejecting God, faithless, God is going to bring them back to life. He's going to put his spirit in them. He's going to bring them to Israel and the whole world is going to come to Israel to hear the word of God. And Israel, these, these, this physical nation, will be the priest of God, the way God intended. And so that's what's meant by Ezekiel 37 and the valley of the dry bones. It means what it says, basically. Let's not get symbolic. And um, what's the other word I'm looking for? It begins with an A. Not, uh, allegory. Yeah, let's not, let's not do allegories. It's just It means what it says. Um, okay. And, and this, this is all the plan of God. He, he, he's put them in unbelief so that he can bring in the Gentiles, and then he's going to bring everybody to him. So I really appreciate the questions that were raised. I'll, I'll come back. I, I will, and please feel free to raise some more, but there's some that are still unanswered, and I'll, I'll come back to those. And uh, I look forward to receiving further questions from everybody.